This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. Hello and welcome to Fourth Estate, the media show coming to you from 2SER on Gadigal lands of the Eora Nation and right across Australia on the Community Radio Network. My name is Rafael Garcia. What caused the Four Corners crew to be expelled from Malaysia? And could text messages be how we consume news? Stay with us to find out. Joining me in the studio this week, Peter Lloyd, former South Asia correspondent with the ABC. Welcome to Fourth Estate. Thank you for having me. From social news agency Storyful, New Varco. Welcome to Fourth Estate. Thank you very much. Thanks for joining us. And joining us on the line, former Southeast Asia correspondent for AAP, Gabrielle Dunlevy. Thanks Hello. for joining us, Gabrielle. Hello. Stay with us for the next half hour to find out um, about this and more. We'll also be talking about um, the recently announced Fairfax job cuts. If you'd like to get in touch with us via Twitter, you can find uh, you can find us at Fourth Estate AU, and that's all letters, no numbers. Fairfax Media has announced another 120 jobs will be cut, triggering strike action by its staff in Sydney, Melbourne, and the Parliament House Bureau, just to name a few places. Peter, let's start with you on this one. Can Australian newsrooms at Fairfax and elsewhere get any leaner? Yeah, that's the existential question we all face at the moment. I think um, the answer is yes, they can, and they are going to become uh, leaner. And I think it's it's a combination of the cost pressures of a dying business model uh, trying to find oxygen to survive until they work out how to make money online, the, the big monetization question. And I think it also, <clears throat> the corollary is, is that it affects the broadcast public media as well. Um, ABC is not immune to the revisionism of how we do uh, communicate with our audiences, um, the platforms that we delivered on, upon and how we do that. These are all um, lively, defining issues of what we do. And it's very much for that reason. You can understand really the, the government talking about uh, revisiting the, the ABC charter, for example, because it's written in such a way that would speak to the past, but not necessarily the future. Mm. Gabrielle, what's your take on this one? Um, well, very sad to see uh, journalists um, forced to leave their desks today or, or make the decision to leave their desks today, especially from, from Canberra um, on, a, on, a, on such an important day and such a big news day down there, although I, I certainly understand uh, and, and support the decision they've taken. Um, I guess, you know, it, it's just really um, unfortunate. It would be really unfortunate to see um, publications like uh, the Sydney Morning Herald and The Age um, lose their very distinctive identities, which they get through um, these... these um, uh, reporters who who we who we trust and and go to, um, um, so, um, but yes, I do understand that um, that newsrooms are, are extremely lean at the moment and and only going only going to go more so. 
Neil, are the identities of Australian newsrooms at risk? Oh, look, I think, you know, there's always, like every day, there's new forms of journalism being created. And I think, um, you know, whilst, you know, it's terribly sad, I think, to see newspaper newsrooms in particular. And I started my career in newspapers. And, uh, you know, there's a robustness um, in the way that they create news and, and they're still, you know, incredibly agenda setting uh, and have a huge function in that way. You know, journalism is, is transforming and we're finding new ways of storytelling. So I still feel maybe I'm an eternal optimist, but I feel uh, incredibly optimistic about the future of journalism in particular. And uh, even in this country, I think in the last, say, 24 months, we've seen Vice, Mashable, BuzzFeed, Storyful, uh, and a bunch of other kind of uh, new media companies start up here. So, yeah, look, I, I, I'm incredibly optimistic. And I think with all those uh, startups, when they're creating their their voice here they're looking for a particularly Australian voice I mean BuzzFeed Australia is an excellent example of that they're um, very uniquely Australian even though they're very much a a sort of a mega news uh, US news startup so yeah I'm I'm optimistic yeah I I think it's interesting that the what you're talking about there with startups and you use that expression where was all that in the government's talk of the new media laws it was all about looking after old-school media and, and their, their death and exit from the industry, making it as, as, as good as possible for them. Business deals, sure. But where were the incentives for the, the, new opera, the new people we don't even know exist? The ideas and the platforms and the technology isn't being applied yet. It's, there's no imagination, it seems, in what the, the, the government sees in the future for the, the regulatory framework. Gabrielle, I'd like to bring you back on this one. Do you feel that content is suffering? It's like continues to to do extraordinary work despite the the job cuts they've already suffered which have been quite extensive already and you only needed to look at the Walkleys last year to see that they're still doing uh, amazing investigative journalism with the resources that they have but it's difficult to believe that investigative journalism won't suffer when budgets continue to dwindle this is work that takes time and resources Peter, what what do you think? Um, are these job cuts um, having a noticeable impact on editorial content? Oh, look, I think there's no doubt that there's there's an effect, but and it's hard to measure, especially when you talk about future 120 years. It hasn't happened yet, but there's a sense that fewer people will have to do far more work, or at least the same work, without the diligence processes that are there. And I'll, I'll give you examples of that. It means that when you go in to do a story, you want to research um, the veracity of someone's claim to be a, a, a director of a company. How do you access the data that confirms or, or, or challenges that information and what are you paying for it? And Because it's pay per everything for that kind of data now. That, that sort of data is gold. Mm-hmm. Um, and it is, you know, data mining is essentially what journalism is becoming in a way. I mean, I do a lot of it. Um, in, in story research now, because I can, 25 years ago when I began, it wasn't possible and these were channels that weren't available to you, but um, they are also coming with a cost. And so there's this sort of this, this dance that goes on in the industry between where the money goes and we, where the emphasis for the spending goes. What sort of channels are you talking about? Well, say, say, when I say channels, I mean um, marketing, distribution channels. I mean, you look at um, ASIC stuff, it's online, you know, Securities Commission stuff. Who are these 
you follow the money basically, mm-hmm. you know, but it's easier to follow the money and sometimes harder in a sense because the way you get there is by spending money. And, and in the end of the day, it's always going to cost you bucks to go and find out the real data. Neil, how can newsrooms do more with less? Um, well, this is going to sound like a plug for Storeful, but... Um, <laughs> Go on. Use Storeful. Um, <laughs> Storeful, I guess, is um, sort of built on the concept of being an extension of newsrooms. So uh, verification of social media content is really hard and really time-consuming work. Um, and what Storeful does is basically we're doing that at scale. So uh, we're using our technology and also our expertise in this area and uh, to basically produce shortcuts for newsrooms. So they can focus on unique angles and, uh, you know, doing the part of, you know, different parts of journalism that they love and, and allow us to do the verification aspect for them. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that's an interesting model. Well, there's a very good example of where that, that was um, applied and continues to be applied by journalists. I was working in that space of terrorism when ISIS first hit the map. And then there was this period, you'll remember, about a year and a half ago, where all of a sudden online, it was every second Facebook page of a fanatic Muslim from Sydney identified as blah, blah. Mm-hmm. Well, the processes behind us doing those stories, that was a nightmare. I mean, it was hard work. Um, but, you know, you get a Facebook page with, with a, a code name, a pseudonym, uh, nom de guerre's. You got to work out, why do I believe and feel? What, why is my instinct telling me that page belongs to, uh, you know, Muhammad al-Barak, one of the guys I was chasing down? And... Verification is a tricky, difficult, and and not absolute process. You still have to take a bit of a... At some point, there's a bit of a punt, but you've got to back it with the judgment of, of data research, which is a wonderful thing. Um, I love it. I'm a geek for it, but you know, it's, it's adding time to the day. And without going too much into that, but Neil, how can that verification be made? Um, that's a good question. How long have you got? No, look, it's... Um, I guess, look, what we're doing basically is we're using, uh, I, I sort of refer it as almost like the forensic analysis of, uh, of content. So if you take, um, you know, a video for instance, there's a lot of data that you can get out of a two-minute YouTube video. Um, we basically are doing frame-by-frame analysis, so we're stopping, we're looking for uh, anything that will tell us the location, so we might see a street sign that has a particular language in it. Uh, we might see something that uh, kind of basically tells us that this area is uh, where we think it is. Um, we're doing something which we call uh, social footprint analysis, which is basically a fancy way of saying getting a bit creepy online. Um, <laughs> we basically go back through... Uh, the stalking. Up- yeah, yeah. I'm very good at it. Um, it's uh, probably something people don't need to know. But, um, yeah, look, it's, it's basically going back through people's uh, social media profiles, oh finding anywhere they live online um, and generating a, a view of that person. And a good example of how Storeful did that was um, with the uh, Charleston shooting uh, in the US and basically, you know, Dylan Roof being a very unique name, this, both the spelling of Dylan and the spelling of Roof, um, very, very quickly we were able to find his social media profiles, uh, a manifesto that he'd written about his, uh, you know, white supremacist thoughts, uh, and we're able to send that out to our clients uh, all around the world, um, you know, so that they had that at their fingertips. And um, that's kind of roughly how it works. I'll keep that in mind when you send me that Facebook request. <laughs> You're listening to Fourth Estate on 2SER with myself, Rafael Garcia. I'm speaking to Neil Varco from Storyful and former correspondents Peter Lloyd and Gabrielle Dunlevy. A crew working on an ABC Four Corners assignment has been detained in Malaysia after asking Prime Minister Najib Razak a question about unexplained money in his bank account. 
reporter Linton Besser and cameraman Louis Aeroglue had not received any warnings before they were approached by local authorities and had their passports temporarily confiscated. Just last year, Australian journalist Marianne Jolie was deported from Malaysia while reporting for Al Jazeera's 101 East program. We spoke to her earlier today. Let's take a listen. Well, basically, I was doing a story for Al Jazeera's 101 East program on the murder of a young Mongolian woman, Alton Tuyasharabu, in Malaysia in 2006. It's a highly sensitive um, uh, murder case in Malaysia because there are suspected links to the Prime Minister of the company, country, Najib Razak. Um, and so uh, in order to get to the bo- to try and get to the bottom of this murder, I sent an email to the Prime Minister's press, International Press um, Secretary asking for an interview with the Prime Minister. I wasn't that time in Australia. Um, within three hours, I had a call from Malaysian immigration... Um, uh, M- Malaysian enforcement, immigration enforcement asking me um, for my passport number and my date of birth. And I thought this was strange and it did sort of set off alarm bells and there was a concern that maybe I shouldn't go to Malaysia at that time. But I went and I got into the country on, and I think I was just lucky to get into the country on that day because they didn't check my passport. They, there was no computer checking of my passport. They basically just stamped it. And so I was allowed through. It was only when I went to leave the country to do an interview with Alton Tuyu's father in Hong Kong that I was pulled aside. I saw an A4 photograph of myself on the um, in the immigration office at um, Kuala Lumpur International Airport. Um, and there were, you know, the officials there were delighted that they sort of caught me in some way. But anyway, they let me go and I, I, I flew out to Hong Kong. But I suspected that I'd have real trouble when I came back. And, and that's when they um, pulled me aside again and, and um, told me that they were going to deport me because I was on a bad list. Um, and, and yeah, so that's what happened, basically. And that was just because I was investigating this murder. And and since then, the Deputy Prime Minister has called me a threat to national security in in the Parliament. Um, there's still photographs of me in immigration offices um, in, in Malaysia. Um, yeah, and all I was doing was trying to get to the bottom of, uh, you know, what was the truth and what was not about this murder. There was Australian journalist Marianne Jolie speaking to us earlier. Gabrielle, in a country with sedition laws that have maximum jail terms of 20 years, just how frightful would an episode like the one that Marianne Jolie has just described or the one that has recently been um, experienced by Linton and, and Louis, how, how frightful could that be? This would have, would have definitely been um, very worrying and, and very scary for the Four Corners team. Um, but But I guess also they knew that um, they had the footage that shows that what they were doing um, at the time of of, um, of of being arrested or um, being spoken to by the police was just so benign. Um, they were attending a press conference, which is what journalists do, um, and they were doorstopping a, a prime minister, which is um, which is you know well within within their their rights to do so. Um, so while um, really dramatic and really stressful, um, I guess they they knew that um, they had this footage, which if anything sort of shows that 
um, what they were doing was very everyday. They didn't cross a cordon or, or obstruct the Prime Minister. And and then at the end, it seems as though they're sort of swamped by these um, by these uh, security or police officers in these high-vis vests. Peter, you were a foreign correspondent in South Asia. Is it at all surprising to see foreign journalists arrested in Malaysia? Oh, not really. I mean, it's, it's, arrest, arrest is probably a, a heavy perception of what, what took place. The thing about Southeast Asia and Asia in general is that you, you're bumping up against cultural um, habits of, of the media practice. In Malaysia, I was I was uh, five years doing Southeast Asia, and I was constantly being pulled aside by the foreign minister and told not to ask that question again that way to the prime minister. It was Mahathir at the time. And he and I had a kind of a, a, a sort of a prickly relationship, but I think he he didn't come from quite that school of authoritarianism where he wanted to sort of lock me up. He, he would much had much more fun humiliating me at press conferences than threatening to throw me in jail. And it's just, it's a cultural thing. Malaysians believe, the leadership elite believes that journalism is, is a function of a guided democracy that, that it must support the state and the apparatus of the state to be on the same team going forward and forth with, you know. It's, and it's, it's a big S, of course, because that, that is a, a, a story they tell which manifests the is, is um, self-serving and uh, it has nothing to do with the era that we live in, the modern era. Uh, this is a 50-year-old story and they just keep trotting it out. Some people believe it because they don't want to think too much. Um, you know, the Prime Minister of, of, of Malaysia is, is, um, is suspicious on many fronts and he needs to be questioned. But that questioning really ought to be done by the Malaysian press, um, which are a bunch of poodles. But if they're not up up to the task, you know, as you say, um, if if they're not up to the task, then is it something that um, Australian media should not get involved with? Is that what you're saying? Oh no, no, I'm not saying that at all. <clears throat> but what I'm saying is is that um, it is difficult to um, go. It's difficult to, to harass the Malaysians without pointing out to them that it's a function of. To, for their own society to solve. This is, this is a civil society question for them to come to grips with. And it, we saw it in MH370 with the plane, um, the monumental stuffing incompetence of how they handled that story, um, the deceit lies that they told their neighbours. The, the Malaysian government are, are, are dysfunctional at a huge level on, on a big crisis because they just don't know how to operate under pressure and they're not used to being pressured by their own media. And you can tell in the last two years, you can really tell... They were shocked, the international media, shocked that asked, asked them questions about what happened to this plane. Mm. What would they want to know that for? Gabriel, should the four corner journalists have known better other than asking the, the prime minister about hundreds of millions of dollars flowing into his bank account? No, I don't, I, don't, um, I don't think that that was something that they shouldn't have done or that they crossed any lines by, um, by asking him that. Um, I think uh, I think, as Peter says, you know, this this prime minister um, needs to have some questions asked, um, and uh, I think um, I think there has been a level, perhaps, of of self censorship among the local um, media there, um, and and also um, you know, uh, local websites um, shut down for for. Mm their scrutiny of the Prime Minister. Um, so I don't I don't think um, I don't think that question shouldn't have been asked. What are your thoughts, Neil? Look, I think 
think the most interesting thing for me about this was um, was the response from the ABC. And um, I don't know whether you guys saw the um, internal... Which one was done with them? <laughs> <laughs> well, but that's exactly the point, though. I mean, the, the ABC is generally quite uh, conservative in, in uh, addressing uh, those sorts of public issues. Generally, the, the stance has been uh, silence. And I thought the um, internal memo that was kind of floating around Twitter um, from Gavin Morris was incredibly strong. Mm. Um, and said basically that all they were guilty of was practicing journalism, which I think is an echo of the yeah. Al Jazeera um, statement. So yeah, yeah. I, I would have been disappointed if it said anything less than that. But and mm. and so would everyone in the newsroom. I think you're right, though. I think there's a period before Gavin um, and then deeper back into history where the ABC wouldn't have dared gone public and mm. and defended itself in those situations in quite such emphatic language. But, you know, it's it was a big thing that were, the journalists were being accused of. It, it wasn't true. Um, they were peddling, the Malaysians were peddling a mistruth. It has to be challenged. You can't let that kind of thing stay out there so that it's, it's not you know, challenged in the, in the history of what happened here. There will be people in Malaysia who believe they did a terrible thing to their prime minister because they feel that's true. They don't know it. <laughs> the two journalists involved, they said in their um, interview with the, with the ABC on the PM program that it's unclear whether they were deported from the country. They weren't. They, were, they weren't. No. Okay, yeah. um, but they were pretty frightened by, by what had happened. Does the Australian government do enough for its journalists when they get in trouble overseas? <laughs> You're asking me? <laughs> <laughs> I, I can tell you that in my case, they didn't. Uh, had, and and I would have been annoyed with them had they done it because it sounds ridiculous. But my philosophy is, you know, if we're going to be as journalists, hold them, hold these guys to the to the to the candle at you know integrity and transparency and rule of law. Rule of law means rule of law. And in my case, it meant I would have been mortified if I found out that the foreign minister had rung up their foreign minister and said, "Hey, can you help us out?" It, it, it a they wouldn't have done it. B it probably would have made it worse. C we'd all look stupid. Um, and, it would, and it would undermine the credentials of both the institutions of the Australian government and the, the journalism that we supposedly practice at the ABC, going up to Southeast Asia, you know, telling them how this is the way democracies work. It's, it's just a really bad idea, mm. and it shouldn't be done. Politicians should stick to the rules. Gabriel, ABC Indonesia correspondent Adam Harvey, he's, he said that there appeared to have been some sort of high-level intervention that stopped Linton and Louis from being charged. What could that have been? I guess, um, well, we know that uh, the foreign minister made a public statement, but um, we know also that they were offered consular assistance and there would have been um, other things happening privately, I guess. Um, but, but we don't know and, and we, don't, uh, we don't know why those charges were, were suddenly taken off the table. Consular assistance is a very strictly limited game. It's not a lot you get yes. out of that. Um, and they, they, they speak of it as though it has some gravity. It doesn't mm. really have much more than functionality like, um, are you alive? Do we know where you are? Um, uh, have you a lawyer? Have you not? Um, do your family know where you are? And are you eating? It's, it's very functional stuff, um, consular assistance. It's not lobbying for you. It is not legal arguments. It's none of that. You're listening to Fourth Estate on 2SER with myself, Rafael Garcia. I'm speaking to Neil Varco from Storyful and former correspondents Peter Lloyd and Gabrielle Dunlevy. There are a few things we're more accustomed to doing with our mobile phones than sending and receiving text messages. But could that become a way for media outlets to reach audiences? Would you want to have your news message to you? Well, media sites, including business site Quartz, are already giving it a go. Neil, what's what's the idea behind news in a messenger app? 
I'm absolutely obsessed with this app right now. I, I think for me, what's fascinating and, and certainly even a challenge for us at Storeful has been how to kind of access uh, those closed networks of, of messaging apps and, and that incredible behavior that's kind of popped up over the last couple of years where sort of messaging apps are just basically exploding. So I think it's it's just the philosophy of following where the audience is. So, you know, publishers are moving to Facebook, obviously uh, not moving, they're already there. Um, and this is almost like the next frontier is like how to really conquer uh, the closed networks of messaging apps. And it's it's really neat. I, I really like it. And yeah, it's, it's a cool little app. Can you describe to us a little bit more about how it works? Yeah, so basically um, they chunk up the news uh, into very small bytes, send it through to you, and you can respond with an emoji, a GIF, um, some sort of action which allows you to either get more information or perhaps move on to the next news byte. How does, how does someone responding with an emoji <laughs> add to the value chain of a bit of data or a story. I, that, I, don't, I don't quite get how I, as a journal, am going to wipe out the crappy bits I don't want to see or, or yeah. filter it out in a, in a fast and effective way that still keeps propelling the value of that information through the, to the hierarchies yeah. of, that we, that we, that we uh, you know, the hierarchies in terms of things we value. Yeah. I don't think it devalues the journalism. Uh, Quartz is a, you know, an incredible uh, news organisation. Um, and I think... Uh, the content is still really, really strong. All the all you're doing with the emojis is just trying to get people's attention uh, and trying to keep them in the app so that they're kind of listening to the message. Um, and you know that's the you know the the push or the switch towards using video, for instance, at the moment online, Facebook, uh, you know websites, wherever you are. Every publisher in the world is trying to work out how to how to crack video right now, and that's because they just know that video works. So mm. that's all Quartz is trying to do here. Gabrielle, what are your first impressions? I don't. I don't mind that it's bite size. I, I like. I like that aspect of it. I've only been playing with it for a little while. Um, I'm definitely not obsessed with it. What I didn't like about it was that it's only giving me content from Quartz. I think, you know, I'd be much happier if there was a bit more variety in there, and I'd also be um, a little more um, keen to use it if it was personalized if it if it knew perhaps somehow the kind of stories that I want to read and was directed me to those in bite-sized chunks I'd be much more interested and how would you feel as a journalist if the organization you work for started condensing your journalism into bite-sized text messages yeah look I, I don't mind that because um, it, it, it still directs um, in this case it still directs the user to um, the, the story the full story um, and I guess, you know, it's, it's just, this is another way of, of getting it to a different audience or um, making it more usable uh, for someone who, who prefers this kind of format. I guess that's not a bad thing. Peter, just finally on this one, Gabrielle mentioned a little bit more variety, perhaps would help us help her um, enjoy the app a little bit more. Can you imagine yourself getting into this? Yeah, I, I think some of these apps all suffer from the same thing, which is that they pick up, they sweep up the, the zeitgeist of the dominant white privileged male. It's you know it's a white man's world in a sense, and I don't know that it necessarily, unless you you find a way to to, to get language and cultural interactions. Like mm. how do you how do you get a Burman language or Thai language ingested into this process? Mm. That's a real challenge because you're not getting. From my point of view, you're not getting that kind of stuff. Sounds like there's a lot more to come on that one. But that's it from us on Fourth Estate. Thank you to our guests, Peter Lloyd, Neil Varco, and Gabrielle Dunlevy. 
Don't forget you can subscribe to Fourth Estate on iTunes and on SoundCloud or your podcast player of choice. And of course, you can find us on Twitter and Facebook and at 2SCR.com. My name is Rafael Garcia, and you can catch us again at the same time next week. <laughs>